Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, Our Motives from God's Perspective, Part 2. And in the lessons that are a part of Part 2, our focus is going to be shame, the lifestyle of shame, and how shame affects our motive. And uh, this is a very, very important subject. Uh, it's a very important subject. And as we go through these lessons in part two of our motives from God's perspective, I believe the Lord's going to show you how uh, shame negatively affects our ability to have a pure motive that's pleasing to God. And uh, in his love and his mercy, he is patient with us. So this is lesson one. And I want to start, let's just jump into the deep end of the pool, and we'll start with talking about Paul's personal lifestyle of shame. Uh, Paul revealed to us that the principle of doing God's will rather than our own had not always been the practice in his personal life. Uh, there was a time when Paul struggled with himself. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. I'm going to read several verses here. Was that was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. For that which I do, I allow not. And what I would, what I want to do, that do I not. But what I hate, that I, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to f- perform that, which is good, I find not. So he had the desire to do good, but he didn't know how to do it consistently. He didn't know how to do the will of God consistently. Verse 19, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Before I comment, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to read Weiss' expanded translation of the New Testament version of these verses. Romans 7, 13. Therefore, that which is good to me, did it become death? Away with the thought. But the sinful nature, in order that it might become evident that it is sin, Though that which is good, uh, through that which is good, the commandment brought about death in me. 
in order that the sinful nature, its impulses and workings through the immediate agency, intermediate agency of the commandment may become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but as for myself, I am fleshly being dominated by the sinful nature, per- permanently sold under the sinful nature. For that I, for that which I do, I do not understand. For that which I desire, I do not practice. But that which I hate, this I am doing. In view of the fact that then that what I do, uh, what I do not desire, this I do. I am in agreement with the law that it is good. And since the case stands thus, no longer is it I who do it, but the sinful nature which in, which indwells me. For I know positively that there does not dwell in me that is in my flesh good. For the, for the being desirous is constantly with me, but the doing of the good not. For that which I desire good, I do not. But that which I do not desire evil, this I practice. But in the view of the fact that that which I do not desire, this I do, no longer is it I who do it, but the sinful nature which indwells me does it. I find therefore the law that to me, always desirous of doing the good, to me the evil is always present. For I rejoice in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see a different kind of law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of war to the law of the sinful nature, which is in my members. Wretched man, I, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, I myself with my mind serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, the very next verse in the scripture says, which is the beginning of the next chapter, but it is joined together by the conclusive conjunction. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So how do we get to the place that by the spirit, we are walking in the spirit of God, and doing the things that we want to do that please God, and we don't, and not doing the things that we don't want to do that displease God. How do we get there? That's the subject of this part two of the series, Our Motive from God's Perspective. Paul's description of his life and lifestyle in Romans 7 is a perfect example of the lifestyle of shame. This is his pre-crucifixion with Christ lifestyle that's talked about in Galatians 2.20. Before healing, before wholeness. Before healing, before wholeness. Paul acknowledged that without a deliverer who would free him from this inner conflict, serving God with the mind and serving sin with the flesh is what he was bound to endure. No one can live the life that God expects us to live, expects for us to live for long with two motives at war within us. One or the other must win out. What, what is the, what is the open door of that conflicting motor, motive? That motive of self, self-serving, about self, winning approval from people trying to earn God's approval. What is the, what's the cause of that? What's the root of that? Well, sinful nature. Yeah, yeah. 
sinful nature. But what is it in here that makes it like that? What is it that causes us to, to feel that way? I, uh, I personally experienced this in my life. Uh, I personally experienced this. I uh, was five years old, and uh, my mother caught a 10-year-old boy molesting me. I, I didn't know what we were doing. I wasn't making moral choices or certainly not lifestyle choices. He said, let's play a game. Young boys are always susceptible to older males because they want to be approved of by older males so much. Even though this boy was 10, I'm only five. He's a, he's a big deal. And he was my only pray, playmate. His backyard uh, met up with our backyard. And he would come across the fence and play in the yard with me. My mother let him come over. But she was looking out the back window and couldn't find us. She came looking for us. And uh, when she looked around, she found this boy doing some things to me. We were playing a game. She lost it. And she began to scream and holler at him and tell him, get over that fence. Don't you ever come back here. The terrible things you're doing to my son. I don't know what's going on here. I, I don't understand what's happening. And uh, when she got through with him, she came to me and then trying to exp explain to me how bad this was, this stuff was I was doing. She did it in that agitated state at the top of her voice. And I didn't hear her say, no matter what she was saying, how she was saying it, I didn't hear her say that what I was doing was bad. I heard her say I was bad. And uh, my dad was in the Navy and he was stationed at the base nearby the house. And it was fairly typical the way she dealt with me when I was disobedient. She said, when your dad gets home, I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you. I'm going to tell him what you did. So that was the pattern. So she drugged me in the house and had me sit down and we waited for dad to get home. When he got home, she went into the bedroom with him and uh, they were in there a long time. And I'm thinking I'm dead, figuratively speaking. <laughs> this is going to be the worst yet. Uh, whatever spankings I've got before, this one is going to be bad. Finally, they came out of the bedroom and neither one of them ever said a word to me. It was never addressed again. They both acted as if nothing had ever happened. They both acted as if nothing had, I'd done nothing. They both acted as if what she said to me in the yard and the effect it had on me was non-existent. Well, Instead of correcting me, even if he hadn't spanked me, if he, if he had talked to me, my dad, and corrected me, then, uh, okay, then they have hope I can be changed. Because they did not talk to me at all. I came to the conclusion they thought I was damaged goods and there was no reason to talk to me. So for the next 33 years of my life, I dealt with these feelings that I was broken, that I was damaged goods, that I was not good enough to do, uh, to be 
accepted, to be loved. And uh, when people have these kind of experiences and shame comes to reside, because that's what I felt about myself. I felt worthless. I felt uh, unworthy. Uh, For the next 33 years, I did not like myself. And when people have these kind of experiences, they go one of two ways. They either say, so you think I'm bad? I'm going to show you bad. And people driven by shame go into the depths of sin. But the other direction people go is they do everything they can to be good and to earn the love back that they feel like they've lost and to earn the approval and acceptance back that they feel like they've lost and that's what I did for 33 years. I did it starting out with my mother and my dad. And then it started with God. It's one of the, I didn't understand it at the time. I was raised in the church. Uh, this happened to me at five. I didn't get the Holy Ghost until I was 12. Uh, I didn't realize all that, all that time that the reason I did not, I went to the altar uh, and I sought for the Holy Ghost from the time I was nine but I didn't really believe I was going to get it, not in my heart of hearts, uh, because I wasn't good enough. I was damaged goods. I did receive the Holy Ghost at age 12. Uh, in fact, it was the Sunday after my 12th birthday, and uh, there were two young people that Sunday night uh, who um, I start, started to do my normal thing. I went to the altar and prayed a while and started to get up. And this night, uh, these two young people, this girl and this boy, they each grabbed an arm and said, not tonight, Chester. You're not getting up tonight without receiving the Holy Ghost. And something happened in me because they believed I could get it because I hadn't believed I could get it up to now. I wasn't good enough because they believed I could get it. I stayed. Now, they wouldn't have stopped me from leaving. I'm 12 years old. But their confidence in the fact that God loved me and would give me the Holy Ghost allowed me to stay. And I prayed, and I did get the Holy Ghost. But I simply transferred my efforts to try to earn my mother and dad's love and approval to God. Now, my parents would have told you that we there was never a time we stopped loving you, but it felt like they did, which is the first one of the first principles of shame. Feelings don't have to be true to be real. My feelings were real. They weren't true. I felt like I wasn't loved. I felt like I was damaged goods. And therefore, I didn't like myself. But my feelings weren't true. They were real. They weren't true. So I went through life. I I, I tried really hard. But the way that I stayed saved was I drove myself very hard. And when I got into the ministry... And I drove everybody else hard because I thought that was the only way you could stay saved. But you had to push, push, push. You had to drive yourself, drive yourself. Well, I loved others like I loved myself. I loved myself by driving myself. I couldn't love people different than the way I loved myself. So I drove myself to be saved. So I drove everybody else to be saved. There were people who just couldn't, couldn't stay, couldn't live under that ministry. So I'm 38 years old. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I've got district offices 
uh, we've got a large church by this time. And uh, as a general rule, I didn't like myself. I didn't approve of myself in any way, shape, or form. That was the good times. The bad times, I actually hated myself. And I went as far as I could go, and I finally said, God, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I cannot go any farther. So in February of 1984, there was a preacher that I had met one time who was preaching a revival in Delaware. The Lord said, this was a Tuesday night. He said, go over there and be in service with him. I've spoken to him about you. Well, I shook his hand one time. We never even had a conversation. So I knew whatever it was the Lord had said to him, it had to be from God because he didn't know me. So I went over there. We sat through services. We got uh, the services over with. And the, uh, the evangelist's name was Brother Lee Stone King. And uh, the service was over with. The pastor asked me. I was the only visiting minister there that night. He asked me if I wanted to come to the house and fellowship with him. And I said, yes. And I said to Brother Stone King, uh, why don't you ride with me? He said, okay. We got in the car, put the key in the ignition, and I didn't turn it on. I looked at him. I said, the Lord told me to come here tonight. He said, I know. He said, I said, the Lord told me he's spoken to you for me. He said, he has. I said, I desperately need to know what God has to say. I'm going as far as I can. He looked at me and said, the Lord has shown me that your life is one of extreme highs and extreme lows. He said, when you're up, your faith is like a bulldozer. Nothing can stand its way. But when you're down, I don't know how you're making it. You go so far down, I don't know how you make it. And so uh, I said, he said, but the Lord told me to tell you, he's going to take away those low places. So he said to me, I said to him, what do you think is causing those low places? And he said to me, I think it's something that happened to you when you were a child. Can you think of anything? Well, you have to understand something. When my mom and dad came out of that bedroom that day and never said a word to me, I took that as my clue. I never discussed that with another human being the rest of my life. My wife knew nothing about that. My kids certainly did not. My the church I pastored didn't know that, and the church organization I'm a part of didn't know all that. Because adversary, I had feelings the adversary had put in there. They were lies, but I believed them. I believed that if my wife find out, found out she would leave me, my sons would disown me, the church would kick me out, and I, I would no longer be a pastor, and that the organization would take my license. You say, oh, that's foolishness. no. I believe that. That was the fear I had. The last thing I was going to do was discuss this with anybody. I was so ashamed of it, even though I'd never participated in anything like that ever again after that day. I was so ashamed, so down on myself, so fearful that it would ever be found out. So when this man I don't know says to me, I think it's something happened to you when you were talking, do you think of anything? My engineering trained mind says two plus two doesn't equal four. There's nothing that happened to me as a child that's affecting me as a 38-year-old man. So I use that as my excuse to lie to him and say, no, I can't. Because when he said that, immediately this thing came to my mind. He was very wise. He said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. I cranked up the car, went to the house, 
pastor's house. We sat and ate. And as soon as our meal was over, the pastor's wife uh, cleaned up. She got her kids and went, to, went up to the bedroom, closed their doors. That left me and the pastor and Brother Stone King. Uh, it was a split-level house, and we were sitting in the middle level. And uh, the kitchen, dining room, living room was on one level, and there was a set of stairs right here. And that set of stairs led up to the bedroom. And uh, I didn't even realize I was counting it, but I heard the first child's bedroom door click shut. I heard the second child's bedroom door click shut, and I heard the pastor's bedroom door click shut. And when that third click from that lock boomed down that stairwell, seemed like that to me. Brother Stone King, uh, I don't know if he was looking down or, or had been talking to the pastor, he turned his head, looked me straight in the eye, and said, now about that thing that happened to you when you were a child. Now, you've never seen an animal in a cage that felt more trapped than I did at that moment because I knew he knew. My absolute worst fears had come upon me. He knew. My life is over. He knows. Everything the devil's been telling me. I don't know it was the devil. I thought it was all true. Everything that I, I would believe was going to happen is now about to happen because he knows. And in, in a fatalistic surrender, I guess, I thought to myself, well, I can sit here and he'll tell me or I can tell him. So I did. I told him the story I've told you about what happened to me when I was a child, how my mother responded to me. And I, and I said something in telling it to him I had never said before. Use the word I'd never said before. I don't ever remember using it before, especially in regards to me. I said, and she caught the boy doing this and after she ran him home, she was talking to me. She was very agitated, and she shamed me. That's the way I said it. I'd never connect. I didn't know what shame was. I didn't connect it with all of that at that point. So <laughs> um, when I finished, he said, well, how do you feel now that you've told it? I said, I don't feel any different. He looked at me and said, then it's not what you did that's been the problem. It's the way you felt about yourself over the way your mother talked to you or you, the way you perceived her talking to you. That's the problem. It's your feelings about yourself that's the problem, not the action. I never heard anything like that in my life. Well, off and on, I, I did my best not to even think about that for 33 years. But every once in a while, at the most inopportune times, when I really was in a jam and needed my faith to work, the adversary would remind me of that. Now, instead of praying for whatever needed to happen, I'm, I'm just trying to get forgiven. I'm repenting all over again. For the umpteenth time, God only knows how many times I repented. And so I said to him, well, what happens now? He said, just like this, oh, we'll pray for it. God will take care of it. Be gone. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I struggled with this for 33 years and prayed I don't know how many times, and we're going to flip our hand at it and pray for it, and is it going to be gone? Uh, yeah. I'm sitting there in a state of shock. We sat there a while. Uh, I don't remember contributing anything else to the conversation. 
I'm sitting there in turmoil. Uh, they're talking. Finally, I looked at my watch, saw what time it was. I had an hour drive to get home. It was late. I said, I need to go. He said, well, let's pray before you go. So they took me in the living room so we didn't disturb the family, hopefully. And uh, he laid hands on me. I don't remember what he prayed for me. He prayed two or three minutes. That was it. Uh, five at the very most. But when he prayed, whatever it was he prayed, I felt something turn. I literally felt something turn loose here and leave me. I didn't cry. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have tears. I didn't weep. Boo-hoo. I, I didn't quake and shake. I didn't feel goosebumps. I didn't feel any of that. All I felt was something turn loose, but I knew. I don't know what it was at that time, but I knew something happened. I knew something happened because I experienced Paul's chapter seven. I do the things I want to do. Often I would struggle to do them. Things I didn't want to do. Often I would struggle to not do them. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Oh, wretched man that I am. I prayed that prayer at times at times. What's wrong with me, God? What's wrong with me? How do I get past this? And the Lord took me past that. On uh, the Saturday after that uh, Tuesday night, I'm sitting at my desk preparing for Sunday morning, and the phone rings. The only time in my life that Brother Stone King's ever called me. And he said, Brother Wright, I'm sitting here praying, and and I I really feel like I need to uh, to talk to you. The Lord said that I needed to help you understand how to live with your miracle so you don't lose it. And he told me the story. This, again, is uh, February 1984. He said, last fall, I preached Brother James Kilgore at Life Tabernacle in Houston. And he said, we had a bunch of people get the Holy Ghost and a lot of miracles. He said there was uh, there was a man there who had been born deaf. It was part. The parents were part of that church. He was born attending that church. He was born deaf, and he was a man at this point, not a child. And uh, in that revival, he already had the Holy Ghost. But in that revival, God gave him total and complete healing, medically verified. It was a total complete restoration, or or, or the, the the restoration of his hearing, which he never had. So I don't guess that would be a restoration as much as it would be an impartation of hearing. Uh, of putting, making his ears work like they never had. He said, but the problem was that because he was, had always been there, the church didn't know he needed to be treated as if he was a new convert because all of his friends were deaf. He didn't really have a relationship with the hearing people. But now his, because now he's hearing, his friends were uncomfortable around him. But the hearing people didn't realize they needed to draw them, him into their circle because they knew he already had friends. And it was so traumatic for him, Brother Stone King said, that within six weeks after being medically verified that his hearing was totally restored, he willed himself deaf again because he not could not uh, adjust to the miracle. Well, um, he said to me, God has done a miracle in your life, but it's a process as he works that miracle out in you. Not an, it, the other night wasn't an event. That was the beginning of a process. You've got to hold on to God through whatever happens as a result of this miracle. I'm glad he called me because I thought my life was instantly going to get better and all of my flaws and failures were gone now. As naive as that sounds, 
I knew that whatever happened to me was that dramatic. But the problem was, the reason I went into these low places, as long as I was doing well, I was fine. But you let me do anything, anything that I that I would not, but I did it. It would send me into a pit. Why? Because I couldn't repent of it. I wasn't worthy to be forgiven. And I would only repent when I got so far down, I was concerned about my salvation. And then and only then would I repent because I didn't have any choice. If I kept going, I was going to be lost. And I'd repent and God began to bring me out. And that's why my life was a roller coaster, highs and lows. And then, 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 uh, Because of this, all that stuff that I might have struggled with at times, it came at me like a machine gun every day. And, and, and every time it would, yeah, anything, I just quickly asked the Lord to forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And I'm going through this and I didn't go to a low place, but I, I didn't understand what was going on. Why, why is this going on? After about six months, I finally said, Lord, what's going on? I, I thought you fixed all this. And he said to me, what did I promise to do? He said, I said, you promised to take away my low places, light. He didn't promise to take away my sinful nature. He promised to take away my low places. What he did was he let me believe his love to the point that I was able to quickly repent and believe he forgave me. So I never went down that, didn't go down in those low places anymore. And thankfully, it's been like that ever since. If we are to become what God wants us to be, pleasing him rather than pleasing ourselves must become the operative principle in our daily lives. This is the motive that the Lord expects us to have. But when I've got shame, when I've got shame, I'm not trying to please me, but I am trying to win my own approval. I'm trying to change my perception of me by my actions and deeds. So the focus is on me, not on God. And Paul demonstrated this. In his shame-based lifestyle, Paul was focused on himself more than on the Lord. We should note that Paul used the personal pronouns, I, me, my, etc., over 30 times in the verses I read to you earlier. The rich fool in Luke 12, 16 through 20, only used the personal pronouns 11 times. So Paul's lifestyle was an I, me, mine lifestyle that he was trying to get God to bless and help. No, God's not going to bless and help that. God's going to change us. God is going to change us. In verse 25 of Paul's declaration and description of his life, uh, he gives us the answer. Notice what he said. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I need a deliverer. I cannot deliver myself. That's what we'll be talking about in how shame affects our motive. Before this series is over with, we'll talk about how you can Allow the Lord to deliver you like he delivered me because he's no respecter of persons.
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for you and me that we might let God make us completely whole and fix these things from the past in us so that we can forget those things which are behind and focus on those things that are before us so we can respond to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus, God bless you. Amen.